Hey, what's happening, guys? New episode of Eastman's Elevated here. So this week on the podcast, I have on Jason Matzinger. So um, Jason Matzinger, he lives and works out of Bozeman. Um, I first met him on a construction site, and I, we tell this story in the podcast, but um, I met him when he was still wiring full-time and videoing part-time, and, and uh, I was working uh, for Barney Construction, um, working as a, as a carpenter, and so we met on the job site, and instantly we hit it off, off and started talking hunting, and, and uh, he had done a bunch of hunting out um, eastern Montana, and so we talked about that, and I had killed a really nice deer that year, and and so we visited about that, but he's just always been a super guy, and he's taken his video into the next level. Um, his videography is off the charts. He's really telling a good story, um, just getting great shots in his films. His commentary is really good. I just really enjoy what he's putting out there and into the high country with Jason Matzinger. It's just a great show. So really fun to sit down with him. He he also gives a lot back to our hunting community. Um, he's, he's involved with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. He's involved with, uh, the, the, the Mule Deer Foundation. Um, and he, and he's just, he's working hard to, to give back to us hunters and support us hunters. And I think that's really neat. And we talk about that as well. Um, the sponsor for today's show is Yeti Coolers. Um, super impressed with Yeti Coolers. So I finally bit the bullet. I got my first Yeti and, and I must say, um, they're just, uh, such a quality piece of gear that you can use out in the field. Their, their coolers just keep ice so much longer. You know, you can last weeks with it really good for, for game meat. If you're trying to keep it cool in a cooler, um, they have locks on either side that, that make it a bear proof container. So you can actually take it in the national forest and, and in the wilderness, if you're tougher than me and can pack it in there, but then you can lock both sides and it's a bear proof container, which, um, is really important when you're camping on any national forest or public lands that have grizzly or black bears. Um, it's actually required. You can get written a ticket if you don't have it. So Yeti cooler fits the bill there. Um, they've, they've got their ramblers, their cups, you know, keeps my coffee nice and warm. They're always coming up with new products. Uh, Eastman's just put out a, a video where they tried to destroy the, what's oh, the gallon jug. Um, so they put that thing through the ringer, uh, smashing that thing. But they, they just, um, Yeti puts, does such a good job uh, of building quality stuff that, that's going to last the test of time. And, and you think of these coolers that they're a lot of money, but at the same time, like how many of the the cheapo coolers do you go through with broken lids and broken latches before you finally buy and step up into a quality cooler? And so Yeti just fits the bill. It's just better to, to bite the bullet and buy one and then start using it in the field because they are a huge asset. Um, so over there at Eastman's, so we're still running this promo for the, for the magazines. And I really appreciate your guys' support, like having this promo code, you know, Eastman's is able to track kind of our following and, and, and our guys that are listening to the podcast and also, um, that, that are reading the magazine and, and you guys showed up, um, you know, so the, the code is elevated 617. You can get a free elk call with that. If you pay shipping and handling 20 bucks for both magazines. And, and like I say, all of us staff writers are constantly pouring our heart and soul into the magazine and, and giving away all the, the secrets and tricks that we use, uh, hunting out West to be successful. So just a, a great magazine and a great company, and, and thank you guys for, for the support on that. So Elevated617 is the code. Go on the Eastman's Hunting Journal website, and you can get on with that. Um, so... 
boy, let's let's not drag this out any longer. Let's get into this conversation, uh, which is a great one with uh, Jason Matzinger. Okay, we're live. We're here with Jason Matzinger in his office up here in Bozeman. Um, Jason, how are you? Doing good, man. Good. Beautiful day out here, and um, yeah, happy to have you in the office. For Check sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're getting a gorgeous summer, aren't we? I like them when they're a little bit cooler. We get a little bit of rains in the evening, cool things down. As many days that we can get under 90 degrees, that makes for a good Montana summer. Yeah, no doubt. I, it, I was just talking to the guys out at Black Gold, and we were talking about how this spring has actually felt like the springs that I remember growing up. You know, a lot of moisture, cooler days. Um, just, you know, it's been a, a good year. The growth, the grass, everything around just looks really great. The mountains are still green. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, I want to thank you for being on. So I first met you, Jason, if you remember right. Um, we were both working on a construction project in Bozeman. And so I was working carpentry, and you were working for Matt Singer Electric back then. And you had your Zing videos that I had seen um, that you were distributing through CDs that you were selling in local shops around. you remember that? I do remember that, actually. I can remember the project that we were on when I first met you. And I believe it was your brother and your dad. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yep, it's a worker, good workers are tough to find. So, yeah, we've got almost all family that works for our construction company in the same for you yeah. guys. You had a lot of family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, was, my dad and brother worked at the company, and uncle and cousin. And, mm -hmm. Yep, I hear you. But I, I definitely remember that because you approached me and talked to me. You know, as a producer, I always love to hear the comments, and positive or negative. Mm -hmm. You know, I just um, love hearing the comments and yeah, I'll never forget meeting you and you coming out and telling me you'd seen the Zing DVDs mm -hmm. and we started sharing pictures and yeah. Well, and, and yeah, so you've been working at this a long time and, and I think the reason, you know, you've been successful for a lot of different reasons, but you've been learning and self-taught all this video, but then you, you've also, you've just always had so much hunting skill and hunting knowledge. You were born and raised here in Bozeman. You've hunted your entire life. Um, so, so I think that's, one of the things that has made you really successful is that all us Western guys can really relate to the way you hunt. Yeah, I mean, I try to keep it, you know, relatable. It's, uh, you know, growing up out West, we've just had a lot of great opportunity right out our back door, you know, from elk and whitetail, mule deer, mountain lion, black bear. You know, we've got everything that we need to keep us happy throughout the year right here. And, I've just found through, you know, the years of doing it that, uh, you know, people just like to see hunts that they can do mm -hmm. and keep it relatable or somehow relate a story to the hunt that, that hits home with them. You know, whether it's uh, a backstory to the hunt that has to do, like I, I know an episode I did after my dad just had heart surgery and we were really worried about him on an elk hunt and, you know, that particular episode, um, you know, we got a nice bowl, nothing huge, but the response from it was just enormous because so many people could relate about, you know, their mentor who got them into hunting and then getting to that point where they're getting older and their health is failing and we're trying to get them out there and, you know, return the favor. And so I always just try to, whether it's the hunt itself or the story behind it, just try to keep it really relatable. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what's been cool is just to see your progression and not that the Zing videos, they were good videos, but now you're just on a whole new level and it's, 
it's the storytelling. It's telling the story from start to finish that I think grabs a hold of you. But in the videography, you know, I watched that episode last night of that big bull that you harvested that's on the Eastman's Hunting Journal cover. Yeah. And uh, what a great bull. And I actually thought this was the bull coming in here because he looked a little similar. Um, but, but that was just a giant bull you harvested. But you, your videography... Um, and, and I think, was it Sam that, that shot a lot of that for you? Gosh, he's got such a good eye for it. And you have such a good eye for it. But the way you edit it together with all those shots, it makes us feel like we're right there with you. Oh, I appreciate that, man. I mean, we take a lot of pride in, in doing it out there. We, um, you know, we try to run by the seat of our pants and be prepared uh, to, to capture it the best we can. And, yeah, I mean, I... What got me into this to begin with was the fact that I love to film. I mean, I, I didn't get in this because I love to be a host of a TV show. What brought me here was the love of being behind the lens and capturing those amazing, you know, sunsets or sunrises, the, the light on the, the grass, or just, just the things that when we're out there as hunters just, you know, make that moment so special. And I, I just got almost addicted to just trying to capture the feeling of what it was like out there through through those shots. and So yeah, I, I love to be behind the lens as much as I love to be in front of it, and that's really what got me here. I love filming wildlife as much as I love filming hunting wildlife. I just, that's really what got me here. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's fun to, uh, to be the hunter, but it's fun to work with somebody like Sam Soholt or Stephen Drake or you know, these guys, and be able to collaborate their visions with mine and, and really try to, you know, show people what we do in perspectives and things, you know, they've maybe just never seen them before. Yeah, um, that's such a, such a great way to put it, um, how you collaborate, and you really work with your filmer to try to capture those moments, and those moments are fleeting. Like, you only get a chance for that, sunrise or that sunset that lighting may only be right for a few minutes and also you have to not stop your hunt you're trying to capture capture it but it definitely adds a degree of difficulty when you're trying to get everything on film and then get those shots as well and i only have a, a, a couple years experience just trying to capture on film but i really enjoy it and it's really fun you know and a big part of it too is editing it all together making yeah. it all telling the entire story mixing those shots in with the wildlife and with the hunter um but but it's really cool how you how you've evolved over the years to tell that story it's just amazing well i appreciate that man i mean it does mean a lot i know you know every comment or compliment or whatever i get it it, it does really mean a lot and um you're right you know those 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 moments are few and far between and you know we only got september to make this happen and it's hard to, when you hear bulls bugling, take the time to capture this epic scene that you see in your head, you know, whether it's walking along a skyline or, you know, using the wind checker or just these shots that help tell the story. But, you know, I love to, I love the combination of hunting and filming. Mm -hmm. That's what drives me as an individual. So if I can't be doing that while I'm hunting, it, not that it takes away from hunting for me, but that's just one more thing that makes it a challenge for me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm happy to take the time to get those shots because I know that, and I tell everybody I work with this, we have one chance to do this right. Mm -hmm. Don't get in a hurry. You've got one chance to do this right. 
And I think about that with everything. And if I if I see this cool scene and we're about to walk by it, I always think, you have one chance to do this. Don't pass it by. And we'll do it, and we'll still get on that hill. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and oftentimes, you know, maybe it put us five minutes behind where we should have been there, but sometimes had we been there sooner, we would have blown the whole thing. So I'm a true believer in that everything happens for a reason. Um, though my path and that elk's path crossed at that moment in time for a reason. And it could have been that I stopped and admired moss on a rock for, you know, 10 seconds, but that's just the 10 seconds I needed. So when I got into the zone, the wind, it's, you know, it switched in my favor and now I can push in and make that shot. But mm-hmm. I just, I just, I don't, I try not to stress about that because I truly believe that it's, if it's meant to happen, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so I try to just enjoy the moments I'm out there and just truly believe that if, if I'm meant to get this out this year, it's going to happen whether I stop and enjoy the sunset and we film it or if we just press on and try to get there. I feel we'll have the same outcome. That is such a great way to look at it. And it's it's really cool to hear you talk about it, how much you enjoy all portions of it. Not just enjoy the hunt and the filming's a pain in your butt. Like, you enjoy the filming and you enjoy capturing that. And, and I, you know, I'm starting to get that as well as I, as I film a couple of these hunts to be able to capture those cool scenes and put that together. And I definitely have that mindset, you know, when I, when I, even when I'm solo and I have my camera, to capture those pictures, like you say, you have one chance at it. And that's what you're going to remember the hunt by. When you can... Go back on your computer and look over a thousand pictures you took on the hunt. And whether it took you five minutes to stop and take that shot and you weren't able to cut off those elk, it'll happen again. You'll get another opportunity. Or sometimes, like you say, it works to your benefit to where taking that extra time to take those couple photos or to take that video and explain what you're doing that'll tell the story better. Sometimes it allows that wind to switch or it gives you a chance to get in. And and sometimes just when you're hunting too, it's always good Patience always kills the buck. Patience always kills the bull. Like if you had to side one side or the other, either hurrying to get it to a spot or being patient, it seems like patience always does you right on a hunt. Yeah, and I gotta say, I, I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> I think all <laughs> yeah, of us have. I mean, yeah, it's kind of the young bull, old bull thing, you know. Um, and but but it's true. I, I have learned through uh, hunting and guiding that yeah, patience is always you know. The, the way to air, and you're never really going to regret it, I don't think. You no. Know, never rush into a situation, always, you know, think it out, but, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, I do, I really enjoy it, just mm-hmm. all levels of it, of mm-hmm. being out there, and I'm as excited to capture that hunt as I am to go on. Mm-hmm. I think that's cool, I think that's what we got to do, is embrace the experience and enjoy you know, these public lands that we had to being in the mountains and chasing these the, these trophies or these animals, whether it's elk or deer or antelope, but just embracing the experience and having fun with it and enjoying your time that you're out there and, and not be so stressed to fill a tag or not be so stressed to, to get into them. You know, if you just enjoy it, it will happen. You know, sure. if you're just persistent and you keep after it, it'll come together. Um, so, yeah, I think that's I think that's a really cool outlook you have on it and have on filming. I think guys can learn from that too. Um, so, so that elk you killed. Um, so it looked like you were early in the season in September. Yep. Yep. And so um, you hadn't really got into a whole lot yet. Um, you were just getting a feel for it. And I, when I read your article, it says that um, that you like to 
you don't like to rush in, that you like to kind of figure out what's going on and, and not spook everything out of the country. Um, so, so is that kind of how you like to elk hunt, is to figure out what's in there? Yeah, and I think where that really stemmed from is when I guided. I was on private property, a beautiful ranch that we used to guide on outside of Bozeman here. And we, we kind of always hunted from the outside in, you know, uh, because of fear of, you know, the other landowners are also outfitters in that particular area. And if we would start our hunt in the middle, we would blow everything to the outsides and sometimes kick it completely out of our area before we actually would figure out what was going on. In there. And I think just that mentality is what made me kind of have this, is to approach every area I walk into like it's my little chunk there and, to, and that I don't want to spread those elk out. And so I've just found that treading lightly, you know, um, I've found that you know, um, and I said this in Project Elk, like the biggest teacher of how to elk hunt is to just watch elk. Mm -hmm. You know, just watch them. Just sit there in the summer. Sit, sit, sit there in the spring when you're bear hunting and not looking at bears. Like, just watch the elk. That will tell you and show you how to become a better elk hunter than any article, TV show. You know, being out there, hiding in the field and watching these elk. And I think that's just what it does is it allows you to really get a grasp on the area, of what's in the area, not blow anything out before you have an opportunity, but also just kind of observe what those elk are doing, non-pressure, you know, from a distance, way off. And see what they're doing when nobody's in there. You know, because they'll do something different when they feel pressure, which I think everybody knows, but, you know, what will they do when they're just being helped? Because mm -hmm. they'll go back to that. And they'll go to those zones. They're just, that's where they want to be, mm -hmm. you know. So I feel like being patient again, staying back, really observing and watching what you're going to hunt before you actually go in there. Even if it takes a hunting day or two, I think it's going to, you know, save you multiple days, maybe even weeks at the back end of that hunt because you took those days at the front end to really observe before you, you just went, dude, I got four days. I'm jumping in both feet first. You, you run in there, you know, you're, you're hunting scattered, and I don't like doing that personally. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, I do this for a living, so yes, I have way more time on my hands than most people, but I think that, you know, we can even help each other by, you know, knowing there's other hunters in the area. That's the other thing a lot of guys will go in and try to beat that other group, but you just kind of beat yourself a lot of times there. You're, not, you're hurting it. So, yeah, I just, I like to let the animals tell me how to hunt them before I hunt them. Well, and it's amazing the opportunities that you get if you don't rush it. Like, you watch elk, or you, you know, I, I tie a lot of what you're talking about as the way I hunt high country mule deer. I, I, I don't, I, I never want to spook a mule deer on the entire hunt. It's the same thing for elk. Um, I, you know, I will hunt elk a little bit more aggressive because I hunt them in their feeding features or their transitions. Or if I can bet them in an exact location, but it's just amazing when you're on animals. the The more that you can get in your favor, which is a, a consistent wind, you know, is not to rush in. I don't know how many of us have been been busted by the wind when hunting elk, but if you can get more of a consistent wind, and whether that's waiting in the evening till you have the downhill thermals, 
you know, whether it's early in the morning where they're still downhill or after they change and coming uphill or playing the predominant wind direction. Um, but it's just amazing what will present itself when you're just on elk and you coyote the herd and you stay with them and, and you're not rushing in to try to kill that bull. You're waiting for your opportunity to go all in. But it's amazing the mistakes and the things that they'll do if, if you're just there to watch it and you don't rush in and blow up the whole yeah. scenario to start with. And so it's such a great way to hunt animals and get opportunities and be able to pick and choose when you go all in to get those conditions in your favor. Yep, absolutely. And I think some guys would definitely argue with me on this, and it's it's area specific, but I think overcalling is one of the worst things and the most often things people do because, I mean, I know our elk in Montana, they may answer you and some bulls may be coming in but the vast majority are just ground checking you. They're just making sure you're staying far enough away. And if you cut that distance in half and you bugle at him and, and hoping that he's just going to come bombing in, well, he's probably not going to answer until he gets far enough away that he's still that same distance. Then he'll answer. And you go, oh, okay, he answered again. Then you follow him. Well, as a hunter, I've done it a million times, and that's why I don't do this anymore. You feel like you're on elk. You're on elk. But you're not on huntable elk at that point. They are on stand. They are they are on guard. They're moving away from you. He's answering you to keep his distance, and every cow is watching your direction. It's it's and that really only comes from overcalling, you know. And so calling can be one of the most effective things you can do in the right scenario. But I think a lot of guys they'll bugle and they'll get that answer and they'll charge in and they'll keep bugling. And, and I think as long as that bull's answering, he's interested. Well, he's just interested in keeping away from you. Yep. Keeping his cows and keeping away from you. So I think just being that silent observer on the hill like you would a mule deer hunt and treating it even an elk hunt that way until you've really sort of figured out what they're doing, be patient, be that, you know, scoot the herd like you're saying, keep the wind in your favor, and, and not let them know you're there in any sort of fashion. They'll, they'll act like elk act when nobody's around. Mm -hmm. And those often, like you say, they make a lot more mistakes that way than when they know something's pursuing them. Mm -hmm. Well, and you're right. Guys get that interaction of calling back and forth, and, and that's a dose of adrenaline where you're interacting with elk, you're it's chasing fun. elk. It is fun, yeah. And, and so I hunted that way for a long time too. But, but our elk here in Montana... You know, they're high pressure. Most of the spots we hunt are general season. They know what an elk call is. And especially as they start to get older age classes, they come in less and less to a call and are more concerned with their cows. And one of the, the biggest lessons I had, like you're saying, is I hunted the backcountry. And these are fairly unpressured elk back in this backcountry, back in this wilderness around where I live down there around Nennis. And, and I got back in there and I found this beautiful 7x7. Seven seven. And I was pretty smart with my calling not to overcall. Um... I, I try to get to the right position where those elk want to be. You know, if they're headed in a direction, I try to get in front of them and then give a couple cow calls and they come check me out. So I got into this drainage and it had taken me two, three days to locate this giant seven point. And so, you know, I kind of came up with a game plan of how I was going to call them. I got the wind right. I moved to the saddle, a couple cow calls. And it wasn't 15, 20 minutes later, he had all his cows headed dead away from me. I had chased every elk out of the drainage just by calling to him. To where, you know, if I would have sat and watched, and, and now I hunt a lot of these bulls spot and stock, as I found calling, I called a lot of the satellite bulls in, and the herd bulls wouldn't come in or wouldn't commit, and as I started to want to 
to, to harvest these bigger bulls, I just, I just found that intercepting them and getting in front of them, you know, hunting them in the transition or in their feeding was more effective for these big bulls and not letting them know I'm there. Now, that's not to say, like you talked about, calling is one of the most effective ways to hunt elk during the rut. But you got to find the right scenario and be in the right spot. And it's more about the place you're at than the actual call you make, it seems to me. I, yeah, and I think there's a definite truth to that. You know, it, like you say, being in front of them is key if you're going to call. Um, it's almost impossible to call something back to you where they've just been, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that and just knowing what you're wanting to say to the elk. I mean, I'm not a turkey guy, so my calls to a turkey guy probably sound like the most generic, just the same and squawk whatever, you know, I mean, I, I, I can't talk turkey, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what a kinky run is, you know? <laughs> but elk, I feel like I can read an elk's emotion, mm-hmm. I can, I, I can tell what he's trying to say to me, mm-hmm. not all the time, I'm not, I'm not a freaking expert, you know, but, but knowing why they're calling, and when, and it, it makes a big difference. I mean, even like my buddy Les Johnson that does Predator Quest, same thing. I can't talk coyote, but when a coyote howls, he knows if it's a challenge howl or a pair or pops or, you know, there's all these things that as you get further into pursuing or understanding an animal, I mean, certain cow calls mean certain things. You know? um, is it like a, a, like an assembly, you know, uh, a real loud cow bark where she's trying to like assemble the herd because they're half on the warning or is it just these almost like in real light news where they're relaxed and but you know reading the bull I think is the biggest thing um, and he'll tell you what he's wanting to do within those first few calls mm-hmm. I really think you know you get that first one that's your locate you got him but just be patient sit there and listen like you know, let him call back to you once and then cut him off. Like cutting bulls off, mm-hmm. oftentimes, if you are calling, will be that thing that if he is an aggressive bull, will be that deciding factor for him. Like, oh no, I was just talking here, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not uh, like Corey Jacobson, man. He could he could tell us how to call mm-hmm. elk, you know. I, I, I know some things, but I do know knowing what you're trying to say to them makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. And, and they know. I mean, they know. There's a, you're so right. Speaking that language and understanding them, and as you're explaining it to me, you know, I, I can I can kind of feel it like you, like you say, the, the cow and the calf chirps back and forth as a herd feeding or a herd moving. The, those estrus cow calls, sometimes that'll light a bull up. Um, and, and then reading that, that bull... You know, is he trying to just move his cows around or is he chasing other bulls off and how aggressive is he being? And I also, like when you cut him off, if you can cut him off, but you're inside a few hundred yards or 300 yards and you cut him off, then you're a danger to getting his cows where it's almost a fight or flight where he's got to come check you out because he's protecting them. So I think a lot of times, like you say, it's watching and reading the herd of what they're doing and you... You know, you go all in when you want to call to that bull, but you're not just calling back and forth. You're moving to the right location, and, and then you're trying to call to that bull and trying to get him to react and get him to come in. And definitely, I like to get close to him before yes. I start calling. I yes. like to move with the herd and then move in. And whether it's a bull, and I love to 
like probably you, I, I like to sound like a small bull. I don't like to sound like a big one. Now, sometimes a big bull will work if you're challenging a bull with a huge harem of cows. But I like to sound like a small bull, and I like to get on the fringes of that herd and, and then call at him and have him come by his cows to come check me out. Sure, yeah. And that is definitely not to contradict myself because I may sound like I'm going back on what I said. But when a bull, if you call to him at a distance and he's answering you, and he's got time to round up his harem and leave, and he's calling back and forth. That's the scenario I described before. Absolutely. What you're saying is you get in tight. You're so tight, he does not, he has to fight or flight at mm -hmm. that point in time. You put him in a position where you've got two options. You're either coming my way or you're getting out of here. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, and so your percentage of where he can go and what he can do skyrockets for success as you're in tight on that herd because... If he is a dominant bull, he will not put up with the bull that close, mm -hmm. and he will be in your lap mm -hmm. after you make that call. But So I guess to back up, I should restate, like, I think calling too far away too often, moving in on the herd, is a mistake. Mm -hmm. Well, and to keep calling at them is to keep chasing them. You yeah. know, it's I like what you said, where you call, and, and then you just go silent, and nothing will get a bull going more than hearing that call, and then he can't tell where that bull is, and so he'll start calling out trying to find you, you know, where is this yeah. bull at? Like, if you can, the the least amount you can call is the most effective in the elk woods, it yeah. seems like. Sometimes you only make a couple calls on the entire hunt where, where you're hunting that bull. That but bull you, that I wrote the article for, one coucher, was all that entire hunt. Yeah, <laughs> was it really? Just one little, like, when he was... He was coming in, I could tell he was going to circle below me at like 70 yards, 65 to 70 yards I've ranged, and I could tell the plane he was coming along, he was going to end up there. So, I mean, man, I scrambled, because my cow call was like kind of down in my pocket, and he went behind this little bush, so I remember being like all awkward trying to get my cow call out, and I got it out, and I turned, and I tucked it right into my armpit to try to make it sound like it was up kind of over the hill behind me. I just gave one little, and I mean, he freaking screamed, and when he came out from behind that tree, he was no longer, you know, at that 60 to 75 plane, he was now coming more right at me, and that's all it took, but I was ahead of him, and I was in tight, and he was already looking, you know, he was calling, bugling by himself, feeding, mm -hmm. looking around, I read that old, I watched him come through the meadow, he would bugle, and he'd sit and just listen, he was wanting company really bad. Um, you know, but we still didn't call to him then because we just saw the way he was moving and naturally going to go on his own. We didn't have to call from him and then steer him across this meadow towards us. Mm -hmm. We were just like, okay, that bull's searching. This is perfect timing. He's a long, big, mature bull. He's moving along that tree line. If we just get on that tree line, he's going to walk right into mm -hmm. us. We don't even think we'd have to do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, right place, right time. And sure as heck, I mean, we got right to that moment and one little chirp and he's in our lap. And that was, I feel like that could have been a critical mistake for somebody that would be like, oh, he's bugling, he's by himself, he's looking, let's call here. Well, then things aren't in your favor. Now you've redirected him. He's more on alert. He's going to come in using the wind in his favor rather than what he's given because he has no choice. You know, and that's another thing of putting pressure on him. He's, he doesn't have time to think, okay, I'm going to circle and go around. He just has to be on. You know, and so I think that could have been a make-or-break moment 
had I called it that hole right away and tried to put it in my terms rather than keeping it, keeping it on his terms. Oh, that is so smart. So. You played that whole scenario uh, absolutely perfectly for that bowl. You could have messed that up a bunch of different ways, but it all came together from making the right moves, continually watching that bowl. And, and in that early season, catching those bowls by themselves, and like that bowl, you know, you'd been hunting for three, four days and hadn't heard much, but now all of a sudden this bull is bugling and he's looking for cows, he's looking for company. Like yeah. you said, you caught him with the perfect attitude to call him in. And then the other smart move, so letting them just come across naturally, and then you're right in front of them. Like you say, you didn't give them a chance to let you know you're there and come in from a few hundred yards and come in downwind. You called to him when he was fairly close right there in the direction he was coming. And then I thought it was so smart how you tucked that call in and you tried to make that sound muffled and come behind you. Because bulls, when you call them in, they come in on such pins and needles that a lot of times you'll call in a bull and you won't get a shot just because... He's looking for where that noise was made and looking for that cow or that bull right there. And if he doesn't see him, he knows the gig's up. Like, I'm nervous. Yeah, this isn't going to work. Yeah. And he'll just hold up. And forward facing. He won't give you the yeah. right angle. And so that's a, an important part of it is making your calls come from behind you. And then also using natural land features, whether it, it's a, a block of timber or like I like to use ridge lines where, you know, the... The moment, you know, you're using that ridge line and calling on the backside to where the moment he comes up to the top, you know, he, he's looking for, you're using blocks in the landscape from where you're calling. So when that elk comes to the edge of the meadow and you're calling from that edge of the meadow, you know, he can't see it, the gig's up. Yeah. And so you want to be calling from back in that timber a little bit and make him commit across the meadow into that timber before he's really looking exactly. for it. But yeah, yeah, you made a lot of, a lot of moves right like you say, it just feels like it's meant to be when it happens, but that all comes from our hunting instincts that we get from experience over years and years of chasing these things, and, and then eventually we make all the right moves and it comes together. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, right. A lot of times it doesn't, yeah. yeah. Well, and that was cool. You made it happen on the first bull you saw, and you know, a lot of times it doesn't go that way. A lot of times you're hunting for days and weeks on end and oh, chasing yeah. bulls and messing up scenarios and, oh, the wind changed, and and you just got to keep hunting. You know, perseverance is, is, is deadly. You know, it's, it's exactly. keeping after things and going for it. But every once in a while, you get it right on the first time. <laughs> and, and, and like a, a big buck I killed in Colorado, I hunted Nevada and Colorado back to back. And I love chasing these big high country mule deer. I went to Nevada and, and I got on this, this really nice, wide, close to 200 inch mule deer that I chased for the entire hunt. But he was hanging on the lee wind side from the dominant wind. And so in the mountains, that wind would just swirl over there. And I tried to hunt that thing. I made three different stocks on them. The last one, I finally it was unconditional, but I came in below them early morning, riding those thermals coming down the hill, just getting into range and some two-point that I hadn't seen pick me off. So I went the entire hunt, didn't kill that buck. And then um, I went to, I had to leave and go to Colorado and went to Colorado. And uh, the, the big buck that I found it ended up being a 201. Uh, killed him on the very first stock, but it was you know. So you just um, sometimes it doesn't happen easy, but eventually you get it right. You sure. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's just it. I mean, I've always said like I'm not the best hunter in the world, but I just put in my time. Mm -hmm. You know, and like you say, persistence is deadly, mm -hmm. and that's that's really it. I and I stated earlier, like I, I am very fortunate that what I do allows me to spend a lot of time out there, and you know that that, that just time in the field. 
um, yeah, eventually everything just comes together. Well, yeah. and paying attention to the animals that you're watching and paying attention, like, like uh, you got to kind of put your ego aside when you blow a scenario and you mess up or they wind you. And I try to look at it objectively and say, okay, what went wrong there? What can I learn from this encounter? What can I learn? Well, you know, if I could change it with 2020 vision, what would have I done different? And right. I try to log that, you know, in my memory bank or in my hunting knowledge. So the next time it comes around, I don't make the same mistake again. Sure. And so I think that's a big part of it is just paying attention to the woods when you're in it. And if you do make a mistake, is trying to learn from it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I mean, yeah, I think it's just like anybody, you know, you, uh, I'm not a guy who really learns from reading something. I'm a guy who learns from going out there and making mistakes. And I mean, I've probably made not every mistake. I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. Me too. I mean, yeah, I've messed up a bunch. But that's that's what's brought me here. I mean, little things like I remember uh, when I was guiding one time. Actually, I remember being right alongside a guy. And I will say the number one thing that I would witness rookie elk hunters who would come on this hunt, the place that they would screw up is they would always wait until the shot was like presented itself, or like a step before presenting itself to try to get their bow back. And I watch more opportunities get blown at 20 yards this bull is going to step out for the broadside because they waited until they had the shot to try to draw their bow. So I am like, I practice. I mean, I'll practice drawing my bow and holding it for as long as I possibly can. And the reason for that is is because I'm, I truly believe as soon as you know and have confidence you're going to get a shot, I strongly feel like you're going to, to get that bow back. I mean, even if that bull's at 90 yards and walking towards you, just never assume you're going to get a perfect place to draw your bow and get that thing back as soon as you can. And I've just seen more elk hunts in particular blown by that. You know, the bull step right into the meadow perfect, and then you get the guy, no matter how stealthy he is, the bull's just going to and he's gone. Where, man, five seconds earlier, if you've got that bow back and just held it, it's a done deal. So I've learned that from actually, you know, watching numerous other people make that mistake with guiding, but paying attention. What went wrong? Why didn't that scenario work out? It was so often not getting their bow back in time and allowing that bull to just walk in while he's already at full draw and then he stops and, you know. Um, or like I, 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 another scenario I remember, um, I was hunting with a buddy and this bull came in, just beautiful, perfect, like 20 yards. And we were kind of like crammed in the brush and he had his bow back. And the bull came out and he shot, and the arrow just went thump, right in the dirt, like you know, two feet right in front of us. And I'm like, you know, well, what had happened was when he came to full draw, some like a pine bough had went down between his string oh, no. and his limb, and kind of was hanging right in there, and he didn't even see it, you know. And when he shot, the string hit that limb, and it just screwed every or, or its string hit that, yeah, that tree limb, and it just screwed everything up. But so, I mean, I even remember, like, after that happened, I was in B.C. moose hunting, and I got backed into this bush by a big Canadian bull moose. It was just an incredible scenario. I wish to this day I would have got on film. But, um, you know, I was I was trying to go after this bull moose that I had heard grunting, and I'm used to elk being really loud. And the closer you get, the louder they get. Moose are weird, because to me, it's like that grunt sounds the same if you're at 10 yards as it does, like, 300 yards. I don't know what it is, and maybe you'll disagree, but it's like a, you know, 
it just never gets out. I don't know. It's really weird. And so I thought I still was like a ways out from this moose. And so I had narrowed out and I'm kind of like tiptoeing down the trail. And I look up and I hear, well, no, I'm tiptoeing down the trail and I hear like, like moose paddle rake up against bull. And I look up and this bull is just coming down the trail. He's like eight yards, you know, and I'm just like, oh my God. And I'm on the only trail in these willows. So I'm. I come to full draw, this moose could care less I was there. I come to full draw, and I'm backing up down the trail as this moose is just, I mean, they can walk faster than I can run, and I'm backpedaling at full draw as this big Canadian bull is And so I was like, this thing's going to walk right over the top of me. So I just had to smash back into this willow bush, like literally just busting twigs and smashing, and this moose is just, he could care less. He was walking right past me. And I'll never forget, like, looking at all my pins, every pin I had was double long, you know, from 20 to 60. But I remember I was about to hit the trigger, and I remember thinking, oh, you better look, you better check. And I remember thinking to my buddy, and I was like, I'm in this bush, I need to check these limbs. So I remember, like, glancing up at my limb, checking to make sure that there was no tree branches or anything, and going, yep, in the clear, and just drilling that hole. But even in that moment, like, I could have totally screwed up the easiest shot with a bow in the world had I had a twig been in there or, or I didn't double check or just things like that. But that was one of the craziest, most intense moments of bow hunting for me. And I'll just never forget even being completely intimidated and scared back into that bush at full draw having all my pins, I'll still never forget taking that second as he's walking right past me, like, look up and check, and then back down, and bam. He was like, you know, here's the door, two, three yards, and he just, uh, just couldn't get out of the trail. It was just crazy. Oh, that is so crazy. <laughs> that is so intense, being that close to that big of an animal. Oh. And sometimes you can hit them with an arrow, and they can come right on you, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen videos yeah. of that. So I'm sure that was in your head as well. Man. Yeah, it was, it was one of the most incredible experiences. But yeah, I mean, yeah, just that time in the field and making mistakes were yep. invaluable. Well, yeah. in, in what you were saying at the beginning there, it's so important with elk and calling in elk is drawing early. Like, you know, I had to mess up on that four or five times before I got it. And you're right, you have to read that bowl and you want to try to draw when their head's behind a tree or when they're coming by something. And so you've got to look at that window you know, and, and try to get that bow back and bend those limbs when that bull's head is behind a tree, behind a bush, and, and that time to draw can make the difference between killing them and not. And, and like for mule deer, for high country mule deer, a lot of times you're stalking in on them and they're in their bed and you're waiting for them to stand. Um, in, in that scenario, I have to be really patient. That buck doesn't know I'm there. And he'll get up and start feeding, or at first he'll get up and look around at his surroundings. What I'm always waiting for is I'm always waiting for him to look away from me. And then when he looks away from me, that's when I'll bend the lens back. But that patience, you know, it takes messing that up a couple times with, oh, okay, standing right now and you try to draw back and then he catches your movement. Then he knows you're there and then the, the scenario's over or he feeds out, but, but he's looking in your direction or, or feeding in your direction or doesn't have his head down, whatever the case, but he catches that movement. And so being patient and sometimes having to wait minutes to get that shot, but it makes all the difference in the world when he doesn't know you're there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, I agree. Mm -hmm. 
you should check your phone, see if we got any uh, yeah. messages coming in. Yeah. Make sure we're both on video and we didn't <laughs> screw it up. I'm just going to take it off here. Let's see. Got, uh, we're middle of the day today on Friday. Maybe some guys are uh, off work already or watching it on their lunch break. Let's see what we got here. Yeah, that hunt elk in Montana is just so fun. Um, it's so thrilling, you know. Uh, I, I love the chances and opportunities you get, and, and to chase such a, a big and wild animal with such a, you know, the elk horns, you know, sometimes stick, you know, 50, 60 inches above their head, but there's just nothing more thrilling than hunting that rut for elk. God, that's fun. Yeah, no doubt. You, well, got, your, you got your tag this year? I did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm stoked. I got the tag I was after. Um, okay, I'm going to uh, just figure out here a couple questions. Jason, your dedication to your storylines and mine is what makes so many people live my family. Question. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Tyler. It, it sure is, man. It, it really is your storytelling. Um, so, yeah, you can you can check out Into High Country on the Sportsman's channel. Gosh, you do a good job with that show. I enjoy every episode. I appreciate that, man. I really do. And, you know, a lot of people are always say, like, oh, I wanted to tell you hello and, and stuff, but I just didn't want to bother you. Well, I can tell you right now, man. If you see me, please come up and say hi and tell me you love the show. Nothing means more to me than, than that support and, you know, keeps me, keeps me going. Um so, okay, i got a couple questions. Okay, good. I'll try to put this back up without screwing anything up. Turn just a little, oh, you're going to go look at it. Yeah. yeah. You can tell you've done this a time or two, huh? With the camera, that is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so one of the questions that we got, um, I apologize, I didn't catch the person's name, we got quite a few there, um, was, can you hunt elk out of a tree stand? I don't know if you've ever done that before, I have. Nice. Um, once again, it, it's very area specific. Um, you know, a lot of guys, I actually know uh, my good buddy Duncan has uh, been pretty successful in killing bulls over wallows early season out of a tree stand. Exactly. Um, I personally just have never had a wallow I had that much confidence in early. Um, you know, that's really area specific. I, I'm a, I hunt a lot of like uh, eastern Montana, central Montana, open country kind of bulls. Those deep, dark, you know, old growth timber, those wallows, those pockets, those bulls like the Montana wild guys have done a good job of killing those bulls with patience to sit on the wallow. Um, I had experience hunting elk in a tree stand down on the Muscle Shell River um, in the Missouri River Breaks. Um, my family actually owned a little piece of property on the Muscle Shell for a while, um, and I hunted in like the early 2000s. And I'll tell you what, that was, I still say this, that was a great elk viewing area. It was a very difficult elk hunting area. Mm -hmm. And it was, you would see elk all the time. You'd hear elk all the time, they were there, but man, I'll tell you what, for as many elk as I was seeing, it was tough to hunt those elk. They, they're just different. Like you said, they they have figured out through generations moving through wide open country with a million eyeballs on them, 
how to maneuver that country without being detected or putting themselves in a position to be hunted. Mm -hmm. um, they just know how to work that win. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, definitely elk can be hunted out of a tree stand. Our neighbor, in fact, I watched like Jackie Bushman and Lee and Tiffany hunted with uh, our neighbors down there on the river because he was an outfitter and they were very successful at it. Mm -hmm. um, their property just set up different for winds and whatnot. But um, to answer your question, yes, definitely in certain areas, tree stand hunting can be really effective. Yeah. If you've got an active water hole or wallow, and those elk are under a ton of pressure from people on foot or calling. Man, patience is a virtue. You know, like they say, if you're ever lost in the woods, sit in one spot. Well, I think you can attribute that to hunting. You know, if you're ever lost and don't know what to do, sit in one spot because something's going to wander by you if you sit there long enough. You you're, know, you're right. It's a, a patience game, and you're kind of, kind of trying to think out the elk and. and you said early season, I think you're right, early season and on water, and you're trying to figure out the travel corridors, but there's just as much challenge in that as there is spot and stock. you got to figure out where they're working and where they want to come. And I, I have a wallow that comes into mind that the elk come into every single night. And, and being in a tree stand, you just get your wind kind of out of that area a little bit more, yeah. um, where you could sit up and then observe and have them come in. But I think it's a it's a thinking man's game. You've got to figure out where those elk like and then try to set up on their their trails or in those wallows or where they're moving through, maybe a saddle. And, and I also, you know, you have to be really patient. But but it's also a good thing because you're not you're not blowing a bunch of elk to get in there and hunt them. You're not blowing them out of the country. You're kind of really hunting them patiently and waiting for them to make a mistake but yeah. you're, you're letting them be in that area or that basin or that drainage so it's definitely an effective way to hunt them i just don't do it very much but even in the central montana or eastern montana even in a lot of that open country a lot of those guys are really effective using tree stands and using blinds and in setting up on those different places you just have to have the patience for That's it and then make sure there's elk around you elk move through such a they have such a circuit or a network of feeding features that not every elk spot is good every time you go in there. And so I think the key to it is being into elk, finding where the elk are and actually seeing them in there, knowing they're in there, and then setting up on their choice spots in that area and seeing if you can't make it happen. But when it goes right out of a tree stand or a blind, he's going to be standing there at 20 yards and give you the shot you're looking for. And he's not going to exactly. be spooked, you know, he's not coming in on pins and needles because you weren't calling at him. You're just in there waiting in his zone for him to make a mistake. So I do think it could be super effective. Yeah, and, you know, for filming, geez, you know, there's no better opportunity. Like, for any of you guys that have seen Project Elk, um, that was on a water hole, um, sitting there waiting for them to come to us. We just knew... We wanted to capture something different and better than had ever been captured. You know, super slow-mo, multiple angles on it. And we knew that we had to be in control of the situation to make that happen versus going, you know, letting the elk sort of command the situation. So we knew in that area, that bull right there, um, it was just a matter of setting up on the water and being patient. And... Eventually, this bull came in. We were sitting, we had sat there. Oh, we got there early in the morning, if I remember right. And this was at like three o'clock in the afternoon, hot. I remember the mosquitoes. That was a terrible year for mosquitoes.
Oh, oh, I think I remember that year as well. Oh, it was brutal. And Barrett and I, you know, just sweltering. All of a sudden, we look up, and this bull had just, who knows where he came from, just peeled off the herd, decided he was thirsty, and, and he wandered right in, and, and we were able to make it happen. And like you say, I mean, gosh, when it does happen, it is such a beautiful thing in those scenarios. Because once again, if you're on an elk, it's just being an elk. He's not coming in alert. He's not running from you. He's not... You know, any of that kind of stuff. He's just being an elk. And when you can watch elk just be elk, it's such an awesome Well, and you're not moving on him, or you, you don't even have a chance to really make a mistake, you know, that, that you're letting him make the mistake and come on into that thing, you know? So, um, yeah, and what a beautiful bull. I just love the, the shapes of the bull. So that bull is shaped a lot like your, your big bull that you killed last year. Um, and I actually thought that was the bull when I came in, but he's got those beautiful big fronts. And then I love when the threes go outside the rack like that. Yeah, I do too. He's got a airplane coming in on those thirds just kind of hang out. It's been uh, always something I really like too. Of course, big thirds are just, you know, not every bull has them, so it is awesome when they do. But one thing I just want to add while I have the opportunity here is, and that I'm really proud of, is Project Elk, um, you know, the vision of that film was to educate the non-hunting public about how hunting is conservation, because I truly believe and understand where not growing up in a hunting family or, you know, having these roots tied so deep to hunting that I just it's ingrained in me, I understand how somebody could not understand how killing an animal is helping animals. You know, that could seem like a real oxymoron to people. Mm -hmm. um, so, I just think that, you know, part of our duty here as stewards of the land and, and hunters, conservationists, um, and some of the people I look up into, look up to in this industry the most have taught me this, is that we just haven't done a good job of telling our story. And being proud of what we've done um, you know as a, as hunters as outdoorsmen as um, you know providers husbands we're, we're not uh, just hunting um, people in general aren't the really like make noise kind of people we're not the squeaky wheel that gets the grease we we're humble we're a humble type of person who would like our work and what we've done speak for itself and we would like people to recognize that. You know, we're not the type that wants to go out there and beat our chest and shove it down people's throats of what we've done. We're confident in what we've done as hunters and conservationists through the years. We know damn well that we built this because of Theodore Roosevelt and a group of hunters in the late 1800s that decided we needed to do something different. That's why we're here today. That's why populations are booming. And, you know, and we know that as hunters. But we have not done a good job of telling our story and being proud of that and bragging to people that we've done that. And the time really is now. We have to really take that responsibility on our shoulders and be the ones to actively go out. And that's a lot of the work I'm doing with the Elk Foundation. We're producing these pieces that are telling people, look at what we have done. You cannot argue this. I mean, we're, we're proud of it. We shouldn't have to cower because we're hunters and, and, and the vast majority doesn't accept us. That's BS, man. Mm -hmm. The vast majority gets to, 
enjoy wildlife and the populations and the, the you know, the, we're seeing animals at the peak of their existence right now since we know about it. There's, bigger, there's a new world record whitetail killed this year. There was a new world record elk killed this year. You know, for people that think that like the scoring system was put into place as a bragging book for hunters, you know, because antis use like scoring and trophy hunting and, and this as, as, a, as a blow against us. Like it's an ego thing. Oh, I got this book to just, you know, measure whose elk is bigger to be the better hunter. That's just, that's a load of BS. Boone and Crockett and the people that, you know, understand where that book came from, they'll all tell you the same thing. The reason that Boone and Crockett, the book, the scoring system was even brought to the table was so we could document our superior efforts in conservation and how that and how we have affected it through the years. It's it's simply a scientific way to document our efforts in conservation and to see if are the animals getting bigger? Are they getting healthier? It documents a moment in time where the animal population was healthy enough, the habitat could sustain it, and that hunter was at a shape in his time to be able to harvest that animal. It documents a time where things were right, is what it does. Absolutely. It's not about who's as big. It's for all of us to use. I, we should, I should be as proud of that book as the guy who's number one in that book. Because we should all use that as a proof to say, look, world records are being broke every year. Animal populations are growing. What have you guys done? Here's what we've done for the past 150 years. Time to catch up. Absolutely. And, um, you know, so Project Elk was born because of all that. What an awesome project. Where can people find that project out? Well, that's what I was going to is um, it's the very first hunting uh, video ever released on iTunes. They can now purchase the download on iTunes of SD or HD, and it's also available on Amazon Prime. And to, one thing to just make uh, more pride behind this project is we have set up with the Rocky Mountain Health Foundation the 50% of every single purchase of this download will go back to the Rocky Mountain Health Foundation from now until I'm long gone. You know, I want Project Elk, I want these films to do something to help hunting, you know, and that's that's where Project Elk stands, and it's just the beginning of a lot of projects like this to come down the line, but I just, I'm just really incredibly proud of the fact that you know, we're, we're one of the pioneers to get a project that tells our story so good as hunters. Obviously, I'm biased, but there's so many talented people involved in this film. I mean, you know, the list goes on from the, you know, Yarrow and Andy and John, who helped me produce it, and Barrett, and having Randy Newberg on there, and Jana Waller, and Melissa Bachman, and Nick Pinzotto, and David Allen, and Steve Decker, and Yana Robertson and all these people are who what made that piece what it is. You know, I'm just so thankful to have had the opportunity to work with these people to tell this story. But I just want to tell all you guys out there, like, please, like, you know, just know that every download from from now until we're long gone is going to go to help help. And and the more we get that message out there, the more we can blow that up. The more our stories can be told and allow us to do more. Of 
Absolutely amazing, and such a good video you guys put out. Uh, you put so much work into just capturing elk on there, and the, the videography is, is truly next level on that video. Thanks, man. You know, we, we just, you know, every producer, every guy, everybody in this industry wants to do something different, and it becomes a cliche term that, you know, it's different than anything you've ever seen, and but I, I can say even to the, even two years later, it's still different than anything I've ever seen, just because you can't argue the facts. And as hunters, if you have somebody that doesn't understand hunting, doesn't understand hunting as conservation, please sit down and watch this film with them. I promise you they will have a different outlook on hunting when, when it's done. And just the more that we can help get this message out there, the more it's going to help wildlife help and uh, us as hunters conservationists in the future. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for all you've done, putting that video together and, and uh, like you say, working with those guys and then putting out and giving back 50% back. That's just absolutely amazing. So yeah, definitely go check it out, Project Elf. Um, such a good job on that film, too. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I kind of, you know, that's, doing something like that is really the reason that I wanted to do this to begin with was to make things that make a difference mm -hmm. on this earth, to do something that made a difference in a positive way. Um, so, you know, I kind of told everybody I could die a happy man tomorrow knowing that we accomplished that film and what it's going to do for elk and wildlife and their habitat moving forward. Yeah, it represents us hunters so well, you know, and, and like you say, the, the, the trophy hunting gets this negative negativity attached to it where you know it's it's actually just because we like to spend more time in the woods and put the toughest challenge in front of us and and, and be able to accomplish it and like you say the Boone and Crockett book the the bigger those animals get and the bigger they're recorded in there in the new world records that that's all shows to how healthy the animals are they can only grow these big racks when they have an excess of fat in the summertime and they're healthy animal healthy herds great genetics passed on so you're right, that's really proof with these new world records. There was a new uh, world record mule deer typical killed with the bow uh, for Pope yeah, and Young. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're constantly coming up, but it's because of conservation that, that, that we are getting these world records and bigger animals. And, and, and also, you know, a lot of our public lands have to do with that too. A lot of the public lands that everybody gets to enjoy. And now, you know, with this new paleo movement, people are starting to realize the, the benefits of, of organic protein. And now... You know, and so our story is getting out there more and more, which is good. And, and guys like you that represent us in a positive light and do a really good job of articulating what hunting means to us and what conservation means to us, it is just great for the sport. So so we can present it to, to people that are non-hunters, you know, in, in a positive way. So I just think that's awesome. I appreciate that, man. And some people um, may find this silly, but I put 50% of thought behind every episode I do as to what the diehard been there done that guy would love to watch and accept and enjoy as I put behind the person who is sitting down and flipping on Sportsman's Channel for the first time ever to try to form their opinion on hunting. I put as much thought into how somebody, if they watch my show for the first time when they get done watching it, are they going to think that that looked really kind of fun and enjoyable? Or they're going to be put off by something I did in that episode. Because I look at everybody as one one person is is the start of a thousand. And, and that one person is important as a thousand. 
And I want every single person that has a chance to watch our show to come away with it with a good feeling about hunting. And whether they go out and buy a bow or a rifle or not, that doesn't matter. But if they if they watch it and they go, oh, that was cool. I learned something. And, and now I do understand why these guys, you know, enjoy it. And that, that was really beautiful. I would love to see those things, too. Like, if they if they come away with that, it was a success. So I put, yeah. 50% into a guy that's never seen a hunting show before, what he would like and enjoy, and I put 50% into what the guy, like, you know, diehard been there, down that, you can't impress me with nothing, but still enjoy it. That's a cool way to look at it. Well, and it, it is, it's, it's the most rewarding, thrilling thing that I, that I found, you know, throughout my years of life is, is, but it's bow hunting in the hills or hunting in the hills, you know, hunting in the mountains, and the things that we get to see on the daily just the, the views where everywhere you look is like a painting, the wildlife you get to see, you know, being in the middle of an elk rut or in the muley rut or the, the early season mule deer, some of the things that we get to see through our eyes, uh, you, you know, and being able to capture that and then show an audience that, um, that's as good as it gets. It, it is. Yep. It's just food for the soul, to use a corny term, but it really is. I, I, I uh, spoke at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers uh, rendezvous here in Bozeman like a month ago, and we were discussing, you know, of course, the sale of public lands and all that. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I just told these guys, like, I can't imagine a world where I didn't have a place like the forest or the, the mountains to be able to go out and reset myself. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine... You know, when I have a bad day and you know, I'm swamped in things and I just feel frustrated and behind and, you know, I can't imagine not knowing that, hey, at the end of the day I can go for a hike or, and I can just go shoot my bow and tomorrow's a new day. You know, I can't imagine not having these wide open public lands for all of us to enjoy. And I'm, I am not anti-private land by any means. I hunt a lot of private, I hunt a lot of public. I just enjoy hunting, and I realize the private is as important as the public, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a rhyme or reason for everything, and sure, as we move forward, we're going to have to make adjustments and shuffle and do things here and there, but, I mean, you know, I just, I, I just can't imagine. You can see why there's so much just hate and resentment in this world for those people that can walk for three they could get frustrated and they could walk out of the door of their job and they could walk for 10 hours and they're still in concrete and people and cars and noise and not a tree or a bird has went by. I can't imagine not being able to reset. You know, and I just think, man, if we were to get rid of these lands or, you know, try to restrict our population into a smaller area now, I mean, you know, the further we separate ourselves, from these natural habitats, the quality of life for us diminishes. Mm-hmm. And the more we try to cram ourselves into these little areas, and you know, the quality of life for humans will will just diminish slowly. The quality for wildlife, the quality for humans. The further we remove ourselves, it's just the quality of life goes down. It's as plain and simple as that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and that backcountry hunters and anglers does a great job at protecting those public lands, and they keep me really well informed too of what's going on as we do have our daily lives. But but you're right that you know the public lands to be able to reset ourselves, and no matter 
you know, where you come from, what your background, no matter how much money you have, you can always go disappear into public lands. And with the with the tags that you can get nowadays, uh, to, to be able to go out and, and hunt for your your protein to feel, to fill uh, feed your family, um, it, it's just um, I wouldn't be anywhere without public lands, and I wouldn't be the person I am without public lands. But uh, it, it's just such a great asset that we, all of us hunters, have to really work to protect. You bet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and you know, it's not just hunters. I mean, you look at ski hills, they're public land. Every single skier, snowboarder, you know, telemarketer, uh, any of those guys, they should be as active as we are as hunters. Yep. You know, it infringes on them the same, mountain bikers. Uh, I mean, Public lands doesn't just affect hunters. It affects every single person on this earth. And as we get less, it will even affect you more mm-hmm. and more and more. It's yeah. a, a, a downhill slide. And man, we've got some work to do. Mm-hmm. You know, we've yeah. definitely got work to do to keep it the same for our kids as it has been for us and, and on and on. Um, I know David Allen, you know, I look up to David Allen so much president of Rocky Mountain Health Foundation, and I talk to him a lot about things that are really on my mind, um, bounce a lot of ideas off of him and things like that, and what David brings up a good point, you know, saving these public lands is obviously important, but figuring out a way to manage these public lands moving forward is equally as important, if not more important, because, you know, right now we have big chunks of wilderness areas and things that are some of the most poorly managed chunks of property in the United States because we don't have the manpower to look after them. So keeping them open is one thing, but keeping them managed and well-managed is another thing. And that's a conversation that needs to start coming up more, is not only how are we going to keep these open, but when we win that battle, how are we going to manage them and keep them as pristine as they are with increasing populations and infringements? Well, in letting uh, everybody enjoy it, there has to be multiple uses for our public lands, and there has to be a place where people can ride four-wheelers and access some more of that remote country, and then there has to be that remote wilderness that takes foot power or horseback to get back into, and so there's multiple uses on these public lands, and we have to manage for for all of them, so everybody has a place where they can get away and enjoy what they like to do. Yeah, for sure, because I... You know, I may not be a bird watcher, and I may not be a guy that doesn't like to hunt, but I don't want to. T- I don't want to close down the trail to a guy that's not hunting on it just because I'm hunting on it. You know, and a lot of people have that mentality, like, you know, darn it, my horseback ride was really interrupted today because those motorcycles went by. That I don't want motorcycles on this trail anymore because it ruined my day, and that's just. Too many people have that opinion. It's like, we have to share. You know, he probably didn't like steering around your horses because he thought he was going to get kicked and didn't understand them. I mean, there's two sides of the story, you know. So I don't agree with the people who are so pure in their ways that they want to just shut it down to any other style of hunting or or, or, or recreation. That's just not the answer. It's not a long-term, sustainable thing. You know, finding that balance is obviously... I don't have all the answers, but I know that just because I don't agree with what somebody else is doing on that trail doesn't mean I look down on what they're doing. I just don't understand. I, I just don't see it the way they do. But I want them to enjoy it. Yeah, I want them to enjoy it. I want people to be happy. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. I mean, 
yeah, I mean, everybody deserves the opportunity to go enjoy and do what they want to do and be happy. Nobody should be really thumb of that. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we all have different things that we enjoy, and, and that's, you know, that's part of what, what keeps it good for us, the guys that do like to hunt. If everybody that backpacked and fished and rode motorbikes, and if everybody hunted, you know, then it, it, we may have overcrowding uh, problems, you know, and so it is that uh, we, we need to respect everybody that's out there, and, and, and I like running into backpackers when I'm out hunting. I know they're not competition, but they're enjoying the wilderness out and through there, and a lot of them, when you run into them on a one-in-one encounter, you're able to kind of explain what you're doing and where you come from, and, oh, I'm backpack hunting. Well, how do you get that thing out of there? Well, we bone it out, we butcher it in the field, we mm-hmm. take it all home, we process it, but they're willing to ask questions and willing yeah. to learn. And for the most part, they're good people. Anytime you exactly. can get a one-on-one, you know, uh, face-to-face encounter and then be able to tell your story. And maybe you're only converting one person, but during the, the next vote towards hunting or against hunting, and you know, that person saw your side of things. And now he goes, you know, those hunters aren't so bad. He was a great guy. I talked to him for half hour yeah. on the trail and, and he was working hard back there. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote yes on this thing, you yeah. know, and so... That's a that's a big part of it, I think. I agree, hundred percent. You know, normally those people you do run into back there are good people mm-hmm. enjoying it. You yep. know, and they've worked hard to be there the same as you have. So they absolutely deserve every right to enjoy it the same as you. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I mean it. Uh, like you say, I'm glad everybody doesn't hunt, um, but I just want to the the eighty percent whatever that number right in there is that is the, of the non-hunting, not anti-hunter, but just a, they don't hunt. They're not a part of it. We can infect that 80%, you know, just a little bit to where they, you know, they understand. That's why we're doing these pieces once again with Elf Foundation. We want people to spread these on Facebook. We want them, we want you to use these as fuel, as, as a, you know, a testament to what we've done. And, and just, just chipping away at it, like you say, one person makes a difference. Um, and so just getting it out there to that 80% of the people who don't understand hunting or, or just don't understand how killing an animal is helping a wildlife species. But if you can just educate them and they understand, like, holy cow, all of this money is from hunters? And they've been doing it since then? And because of this, like, that's why we're here? Yeah, I don't see anybody else caring for wildlife like them. I definitely have had... Uh, mixed opinion. I thought they were all savages, you know? Well, no. So now we're actively telling our story. Yeah, the, yeah. the Project Elk is doing yeah. a great job with that one. And also... Elk and like, um, you know, our hunting is conservation series that Elk Foundation is doing, mm-hmm. um, Elk Country Chronicles, all of those are pieces to say, look what we've done, whether it's, you know, uh, help restore wildlife species, or whether it's specific projects that the Elk Foundation has taken membership dollars and went out and bought these private tracks that have now opened up access to millions of acres across the United States. We want people to know we're the ones doing this. Mm-hmm. You don't see competing uh, anti-hunting organizations putting any money towards wildlife. No. I'm talking zero no. towards wildlife. It's all against hunting. Yeah, it's all lawyer's fees. To fight us, mm-hmm. it's just and so yes, we're just we're, we've shifted our way of thinking into assuming people know. Now we're just going to try to cram it down your throat so you know mm-hmm. what we've done. Mm-hmm. 
and telling a good story. And, and also, it's such good organic meat. It had no hormones, no additives. I mean, uh, well, you know, me and my entire family live off wild game all year round. But, you know, just to share a package of that with your neighbors, hey, these are my elk steaks, you know, cook these up. I, I think that's doing a good thing as well uh, because it is such good meat. And I think this, this paleo movement has really helped out where paleo... You know, now they see it in a positive light that, oh, you can hunt for your food and, oh, you can get this good, clean protein by hunting and, and, and just being, you know, knowing where your food comes from and, and not buying it in a, in a grocery store, like actually having to go out and harvest your animal and having to butcher your animal and process it in and through. It gives you a better connection, you know, with the animals and, and with nature and, and, and with the meat that you're eating and giving your family. So I think that's a really cool deal, too, and one of the benefits that we get out of hunting. For sure. And it and it's a balance. I mean, I support our local farmers and ranchers. Absolutely. I mean, I, they're dear friends of mine, mm -hmm. you know, and they do great things. They take wonderful care of their cattle. There, there, there's a difference between, um, you know, factory, factory farming, farming yeah. at, at a super high level and family-run operation cattle farms, you know. There's a big difference. Absolutely. I, I truly believe in the ranchers and the farmers and all agriculture. I mean, that is America, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but but there's that balance again, and it's not everybody being a cattle rancher. It's not everybody being a hunter. It's not everybody being a vegetarian. There's, there's a balance there. And, it, and you know, it's uh, like just one more kind of factoid or whatever that we put out on uh, Project Elk was, I think we collected, it was like, it was a huge number. Uh, it was millions and millions of people across, just in the United States that are sustained from wild meat. Like you family. Mm -hmm. How many is in your family? Four or five. Four. So four or five people. Sustained. I can't remember how many people I've got in my family. <laughs> There's four of us. I, yeah. <laughs> okay. Depends if you have like a neighbor kid over or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, so there's four in your family, and those are that's the case all across the United States. So something that people that don't hunt can understand is what if you put these millions of people now, who now we do have to buy. Like our farmers and ranchers and agriculture is under so much strain and demand right now to keep up to the amount of land they have to do this and the amount of people they're now trying to sustain. That's why these factory farms have even been allowed to be around. People need food, you know? Um, but if you were to take millions of people who are sustained from hunting, and you put them into society who now need meat for four people, for just your family for a year, that puts just so much strain on a farmer you know, the, the price of beef would skyrocket. The price of vegetables, the price of everything would go through the roof if hunting were gone. Mm -hmm. And that's just a common sense, no brainer, this would happen scenario if hunting were gone. And that's just something nobody ever thinks about. Mm -hmm. You know? And that's just one reason why, you know, I wholeheartedly believe in hunting and conservation and, and how the world would just go into a massive spiral, downward spiral, without it in so many ways. Well, and it's good it's catching on to be self-sufficient, not only in hunting, but now 
you're seeing a lot more people that have their own chickens and get their own yep. eggs and, and butcher their own chickens. A lot of people that have their own vegetable gardens, you know. Yeah. It's all of them. We love growing a garden. Like this, it's the same satisfaction. Like growing a garden, providing your own meat, chopping your own firewood. It's those simple necessities of life that give you this full circle, gratified feeling that you just cannot get anywhere else. Because it's meant to be. It's natural. It's what we're here to do. That's why it feels so good. It's in our DNA. That's a great way to explain it. Yeah, for sure. So um, I've taken up a bunch of your time, but I just want you to touch real quick. So we talked about public lands. You have a super exciting public land hunt coming up this year. You drew a really good tat, right? <laughs> I did, and that was actually a couple of the other comments were about the sheep. <laughs> I bet rumor has it I drew a second big horn. Tat. We're all interested <laughs> in it. And that's just amazing. Congratulations to you. Well, yeah. you got some good karma out in the world. <laughs> I guess, man. I'd rather be lucky than good any day. <laughs> me too. I've lost a lot of friends with the <laughs> and uh, people that I thought were close to me now hate my guess. <laughs> but. Uh, I don't know, man. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just put in, like everybody else, two bonus points after waiting seven years and uh, drew it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was actually on the phone with my buddy Nick and uh, just going through the routine of checking the draws. Like, yep, nothing again. And I shouldn't say that. I've been really lucky. But <laughs> going through the routine and I was like, I mean, the conversation just stopped. He's still, I'm not even listening to him. I'm like, dude. I think I just drew a second big horn sheet tag. Oh no, this is a sheet of paper right here. I had to print it. <laughs> but uh, print it so they wouldn't take it away from me. Yeah, huh? proof. Um, that's just so awesome. And I always like to see guys that I know that draw good tags because it it just uh, well you know anything in hunting if you if you get too caught up in in what somebody else is doing and jealousy. It ruins your experience, oh, you know. So, totally so you're better off in hunting. If somebody kills a giant bull, is to be happy for him. He put in the work and God, but but I know uh, I was psyched to see that you threw a sheep tag, and uh, what what a way cool experience. And so your first sheep was what did you say nine ten years ago? It was in 2006. Uh-huh. Yeah. I I know you look young in the picture. <laughs> yeah, young buck there before the days of Sitka gear. Yeah, what a great sheep, man. You're gonna have a tough time topping that one. Yeah, that uh, that guy, I became obsessed with that ram and was able to get him. I, I had my dad there. He's never been lucky enough to draw a bighorn sheep tag, put in his whole life here in the state of Montana. Uh, my other good friend, George, Europe, uh, same thing. So they were both there on the hunt. Uh, they were able to watch through the spotters from across the canyon, and uh, we were able to get that ram. And just, a, oh yeah, just a fantastic ram. We had seen... No, I think I had counted over 70-some different rams and before I took that ram. Um, I tried to differentiate different rams, you know, and not count the same ones twice. But just, man, what an incredible hunt. And I, I never thought, you know, 10 years later, I think I'd have the chance to think about what would I do differently. Never thinking ever I would have the chance to do that hunt again. But I've had the chance to think about it. And... So the two things I'm going to do differently this year is I'm going to spend a lot of time. I mean, like, a lot of time. I'm not going to ignore an elk in September because I just can't. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I love it. It's too much fun yeah, to ignore, exactly. isn't it? Well, and you, so, we get a big, see, you get a, a big block of time to hunt yeah. them, 
But uh, that's great. So you're going to take uh, as much part as as much time as you can scouting them and hunting them and enjoying the experience. Exactly. I want to just be that guy that's like looking at sheep and falls asleep on the side of the hill and wakes up at like an hour before daughter. Like, oh, yeah. you know, like I, I just want to be that guy that's just out there hunting, enjoying the hunt, and when the opportunity is right, and I'm 100 percent in love with it, and it's just every, everything 100 percent. What a dream! It'll happen, but I'm not going to get in a hurry, and I'm going to stick. I'm going to do it with the bow this year. Are you really good yeah. for you? So, and I've been talking with Sitka and Wild Chief already, and um, some of my other partners about really trying to create a film about this hunt. Like, you know, once again, it's a cliche term, like nobody's ever seen. Mm -hmm. But I do think that I have the opportunity and the amazing people who surround my life. Um, to, to tell a story like hasn't been told. You know, there's just not many opportunities to hunt big horn, and then to have the opportunity to do it a second time differently. There, there's a lot of things that are teed up for this that I have the opportunity, I, I truly feel, to tell a story, to use this opportunity to tell a, a so much greater story of conservation. Because that, the, the, the bighorn sheep story in general is such a success story. Mm -hmm. All our hunters, you know, um, there's just a lot of things touching right now. You know, that area specifically has a lot of history, just U.S. history, Montana history. Um, you know, the sheep have done amazing things. There's, you know, we've been talking about monuments here, a lot of talk about our monuments and things. Um, there's a lot of that in that country. So there's just this whole huge story to be told about sheep and conservation and American history, you know, through this film that I just, I think that we really have a cool opportunity to capture something like um, it's just never been captured. Oh, no doubt about it. Well, you have so much experience telling good stories, and honey, it's almost like perfect timing for you. You've been doing it for so many years and so good at telling that story, and and with the project Elk Under Your Belt, and now having this opportunity to do this, and to do it with a bow, and having a, enough time to be there and enjoy it, and, and, and look at different rams, man, oh man, what a great opportunity. Oh, it, it's it's going to make an absolutely epic film. <laughs> Dude, I, I am so stoked. Um, yeah, I mean, as you can imagine. But yeah, the plan is to just really just spend a lot of time. Um, you know, a lot of the guys I've talked to are like, you can just wait until the rut. Do it. Because it's hard to hold on to your tag that long. But if you can, you will experience something unlike anyone. I mean, the least that, you know, these sheep rut so hard. And they're just so oblivious to anything going on. And they're just so active in, in their postures and their movements. And they're just such an amazing animal to witness. He's like, man, I'm telling you, for filming, if you can just hold out. And that's another reason why I'm like, just get to elk camp, keep your head down, don't think about the sheep, just keep your head down, because that'll also force me to stay out of there until later in the season when I know activities will pick up, and these sheep will start rutting, and the, and the footage, you know, I mean, I've, I've always I've always thought of how cool that would be if you could wait till the rut and hunt them during the rut. But but yeah, you're set up perfectly to do it because we 
you do get a lot of time late in that season. That whole month in November is, is the sheep rut. And if you just plan your time right, you can spend that whole month in November and, and going in there with a the bow, embracing the experience. You already have one under your belt. So you're not... Pressure's off. The pressure's off. You can just enjoy it and embrace it and try to capture a good film. And then, uh, and, and like you say, if the right ram was to present himself in late October or something. But I... I don't know. Wait until that that rut. You're going to get such good footage and 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 such a cool experience being able yeah. to be out there and hear their horns clashing oh, yeah. and and watch them chasing ewes around on the hillside and then you know finding the ram that you want and making plays out of that is just unreal. That is a dream for a bow hunter, any hunter, to be able to go experience that. Oh sure, that's so I, cool. I, yeah, I don't know what I'm still speechless. I, I just know that. <laughs> Man, I've been blessed with a heck of an opportunity, so I'm sure we're just going to make the most of it. Everything from personally, I'm going to make the most of it, to what I feel um, the greater message for us can come out of it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make the most of it, too. That is so cool. Yeah, well, congratulations on the tag. That is just awesome. Well, thanks, man. Should we check and just see if there's any last uh, questions here? Let's do it. Let's see if we can get in behind here. Um, yeah, so we're doing a Facebook Live as we're recording this. So Jason's just checking his phone here to see any questions that came through that we can answer and kind of engage our audience in, in real time. So this was really cool for you to do, Jason, to put this together and put this on Facebook Live. Yeah, it's fun, man. It, uh, you know, the more we can interact with people and uh, just, you know, answer the questions, the better. Getting a lot of questions here about the new Sitka pattern. Oh man, is that <laughs> not just the most ridiculous thing you've ever used? Oh my gosh, I when I, I, I went over there and, and met with those guys about a week ago and did a podcast over there, but um, they, they went through such rigorous testing to develop this pattern, but that thing blends in so good, and I noticed it on your film the other day, or your uh, TV show into high country for your bowl, how well you blended in and all those surrounding oh, they absolutely nailed it. I think that is the best camel pattern bar none on the market right now. And I used it in Hawaii a couple weeks ago and I blended in so good in Hawaii in there. You blended in so good on your elk hunt above tree line. It just the way they tied those tans and browns and then the the little bit of greens and then the black outline, that's the best camel pattern going. It's it's I mean, without a doubt, I agree with you 100%. You know, it is by far the best camel pattern, most effective thing I've ever used in my entire life. Um, you know, visually, it, 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 I think a lot of people think it's like too, I don't know, I've had some comments like it just seems too colorful or something like that. But then when they see it in the field, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I've never seen a color scheme match up so perfectly. I mean, I saw somebody wearing it in a rock slide on Facebook. They were laying down in the rocks. I can't even remember who it was. I mean, it's not even where it's designed to be used is in rock slides. You know, that's where they want the open country now above tree line mm -hmm. to be used. But this, I mean, it, like you say, from Hawaii to central eastern Montana, um, up in the rock slides, bear hunting this spring, I honestly have never been so stoked about a camel pattern in my life. It is ridiculous how 
creative ones in. I have a lot of stories, and my buddies, if they were here, they'd tell you the same thing. You know, I had that um, good fortune to be able to test it a year ahead of my friends, so they were all in, um, you know, open country, and they would be up there hunting and whatever, and they're used to me being in open country and, and the whole works, and I'd be calling for them, and they turn around and look back, and they had no idea where I was. And I would purposely like stand in the open, and I would just lean up against a tree and just be still. And I can't tell you how many times they would almost walk right up to me and be like, "Oh, you're right there." I mean, even photos. You know, when you see it with that versus another camel brand or pattern or anything, it's like you almost. There was so many photos we could not use because I don't show. It, we shouldn't show up it's in the It's like photos. this weird, I'm like the predator. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. It is crazy how good that pattern works. So, I mean, the Sitka Subalpine, if anybody, you know, the, 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 this pattern was designed to be, uh, you know, you guys touched on it with those guys, or not touched on it, you went in full detail. But, you know, it's designed to be used between the, you know, right at tree line all the way down to basically the rivers, you know, any of that brush in between. They've got open country is designed to be used on the rocks above tree line in that country. Subalpine now is, you know, from tree line down to like the rivers. And now they have, you know, elevated forest for the whitetail hunters and the marsh pattern for the duck hunters. So that's the other cool thing I think that Sitka is doing is they're not just putting different patterns on the exact same cuts of gear. They're developing patterns along with specific cuts of gear for that style of hunting. Mm -hmm. You know, the marsh pattern and the products it's put on, you would never want to wear for elk hunting, but they're dynamite duck Absolutely. And vice versa. Mm -hmm. So, but I agree. Sit had just absolutely nailed it on the head. I, I can't think of a single thing I would change about that pattern. It is like spot on for where I hunt and how I hunt. Oh, man. It so is. Well, and I used to wear. Like, everybody I'd see in that, there's, like, this light-colored tan grass that we have everywhere in the fall. And it's up high, yeah. it's in middle ground, it's everywhere, but it's all these tan grasses. And every time I'd see a human, they were always dark in it. They were a dark silhouette. And, and this, so I started wearing a lot of clothing, like, this solid-colored tan clothing to blend into that grass. And just so I wasn't a dark silhouette when I crossed a meadow or was in the open. And then once you're in the shade, you kind of disappear. But what they've done with this pattern, uh, I mean, the, the tans that they have tied into it are just a perfect tan to blend into that grass where you absolutely disappear no matter where you're at out west. And, yeah, and yeah you're going to have a tough time having to use any other camo pattern. And they went through a rigorous development process, tweaking and twisting their colors and getting the right the right palette of colors that, that mix together right. But those tans in that, in that camo pattern are absolutely unreal. And, yeah, you disappear in that stuff. I had... Yeah. Axis deer, you know, they're like a, a cross between an antelope and a coos deer. They're really wily. I mean, I had them come up within five yards. They kind of caught me off guard. I was walking by a water hole, and, and these does came in, and they came in and drank from me three yards away. And I'm standing in the wide open, no cover, just holding still in that camel pattern, and they never saw me. And just, just, just an incredible camel pattern. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I can't say enough about it. I mean, I'm, I'm jacked to get into with that thing from the, I mean, you can take photos from where I elk hunt and lay that camel pattern next to the photo even, and it's like, it's like an extension of the photo. It's just weird. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, they nailed it. 
Well, and I didn't get it until I actually got it in my hands and started using it. You know, you can look at it, like you say, and that's what it's I mean. a little too colorful. or So, that, you know, I thought, oh, it's got a little bit too many greens in it for me. I hunt up higher than that. But once I started to get it and started to research, looking at pictures of other guys in it, and I just typed in a, a hashtag subalpine, and so I could kind of look at different guys, it blends into absolutely all terrains. Yeah. And then once I got it, I was a believer. And like you say, you start taking photos out in the field, and you are... You're wearing the predator suit. You just disappear. <laughs> you blend into the background. Yeah, and you're like, oh, that'd be a cool photo, but I don't even know if people are going to notice me. And by the time I do, then it's gone. Yeah, good <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I, I can't thank you enough for being on Eastman's Element. It's really fun conversation yeah, with you here, and I thank sure. you for for all you do to to present hunting in a positive light. And uh, yeah, I just wish you the the best of luck this year. To enjoy that that special tag you have and opportunity. That's just great. Thanks, man. Well, it's been a pleasure having you. I'd love to do it again sometime. And uh, yeah, it's cool. It's uh, so many years ago meeting you on the job site. Here we are doing what we love, man. It's awesome. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, and let's do it again. Let's do it. Uh, I'd love to do one like after your sheep hunt. Okay. And, and come on, and we'll uh, we'll we'll talk about the film that you put together, and hopefully your giant sheep you got. I hope so too. All right. Thanks again, Jason. Thank you, Brian. All right, that's a wrap. Uh, really fun episode and conversation with Jason. I just, I really enjoy that guy and, and really enjoy sitting down and, and having a long form conversation with him. So that was really cool. Thanks to him for, for being on the Eastman's Elevated podcast and, and wish him all the best on that cheap tag and on a season. And, and he's got a lot of really cool things in the works. So make sure to look out for his TV show, uh, Into the High Country with uh, Jason Matzinger. It's on the Sportsman's channel. Um, just does a really good job with it. it if you like watching hunting TV, this is this is one of the best ones out there. So make sure to check that out. Um, as far as uh, Eastman's, we've got that uh, East that elevated six one seven that promo code for a subscription to the magazine. So both magazines twenty bucks. They'll throw in an elk call for it and uh, or an elk call with it. Uh, just pay the shipping and handling Timberline elk call. So uh, make sure to check that out. Um, and thanks to our sponsors, uh, Yeti Coolers. Um, like I say, I just so impressed with, with both their, their cups, their, uh, they've got a gallon jug. They're always coming out with new things. They got some new things in the works and then just super impressed with their coolers. Um, it's going to be a huge asset to me this season. So, uh, thanks to them for sponsoring the podcast and make sure to give them some love. And with that, boy, I just got done with this death hike. We did, uh, was 38.8 miles, so almost 40 miles and did it in, uh, 24 hours. Um, just a great hike, great to tune up the legs and just a super group of guys that we went with. So that was really fun. Saw some beautiful country, covered some miles, um, just getting me ready for season. I'm headed scouting this weekend. Uh, looks like I've got some, some lightning storms coming in about every night, but, uh, it, that's just the way it goes for me. Uh, it wouldn't be any different or I, I wouldn't expect anything any different. So we'll just deal with them. Um, you know, it's just part of hunting high country mule deer and something you got to deal with. So I got to get down there scouting. So, uh, really excited for that. Um, I want to start locating some good bucks, so be down there. And, and then I, I believe I'm going to try to make the, the total archery challenge up there in Big Sky. Um, it's a couple, two, three-day shoot, so I'll, I'll try to get up there for a couple days and shoot. So um, if you guys are around or planning on being up there, make sure you stop and say hi. Um, be up there and, and uh, do some ripping at some foam. So i um, going to go do that, and uh, 
maybe another weekend or two of scouting, or I think I got maybe one more weekend, and then I leave for Alaska on that caribou hunt. So um, it's all coming pretty quick. Uh, it's just super excited for season. Um, got back from that that death hike, and man, I sure felt good. Um, you know, legs felt good. I was really stiff when I finished up, just from all the mileage or whatever in such a short period of time. But uh, amazingly, you know, my legs recovered, and um, I wasn't sore at all. Felt really good. Went for a run with my wife the next day, and and uh, then I've been been running like crazy since getting back. So really want to peak my performance, spending a lot of time with my bow, um, just really making sure that I got them dialed in, ready to go, full of confidence. Um, you know, and I, I get my bows all shooting good and, and sighted in and where I feel comfortable with everything. And then I start shooting challenging shots, distance, kneeling, one-shot groups, shooting a lot of those right now. So um, just trying to peak here for season. So really looking forward to it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. That's what I got going on. And, and, uh, other than that, we'll, we'll keep getting out these podcasts. I got a couple more scheduled, going to do one tonight, one tomorrow, got, got a couple scheduled for next week. So just keep recording with, with uh, good hardcore hunters so I can keep getting good information out to you guys. And then going to try to do some live stuff and, oh, and, uh, got the final edit to my elk video. Um, so Eastman's is going to release that, I believe in the next couple weeks. So I'm super excited for that. It'll be my, my TV debut. And I think it turned out well and tells a, tells a really good story and um so super pumped for that to to get that out to you guys um be looking for that outdoor channel on on uh, eastman's hunting tv um so that's a fun episode there and um boy just putting everything together for this season just super psyched it's gonna be so much fun so um good hunting to you guys out there keep training keep working hard and i'll check in with you guys next week